Uh, we're in John chapter 5. So much here in, in this particular passage. We began this last week. We really, we really looked at the first nine verses last week, which uh, from there we're going to backtrack just slightly. And then we're also going to slow down. I'm gonna, I want to read to you, um, starting in verse 8 through verse 15, but I, I probably won't get much, much really past verses 12, 13, and 14 this morning. In, in just uh, some of the things that, uh, that I believe that I've received out of, out of this passage. And, and so much here, really just so much here. And, and, and we'll see this type of topic come up again in the book of John. We'll see it in John 7. We'll see it in John chapter 9. Uh, this, this question of the law and, and uh, how we are to respond to the law, how Jesus responded to the law. It tells us in verse 8 of John chapter 5. I'm going to read to you this morning out of the New American Standard 2020. I'll probably switch to the New King James at some point, but I mean, after I read. Um, but it says, Jesus said to him, he's talking to a man who has been lame for 38 years. He's there at the pool of Bethesda. He is waiting there by the pool because there was this, this idea that an angel would descend into the pool, and when the waters began to stir, whoever got in first was healed. Now, quite frankly, as I brought up last week, why would they all be sitting there by the pool if this didn't happen? There had to be something there that drove them to desire to sit there year after, week after week, month after month, year after year, actually, and in hope that when, when the waters were stirred, that they would receive a healing. I think healings are, again, I think they are normative today in, in the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I think often it is that God has other plans for us. I, I, I wrestle with this a lot because I, I have prayed for other people to be healed. I've prayed for my wife to be healed. At times I have prayed to be healed. And, and God works through many different mediums to heal, does he not? I really think he makes the medicine work. Um, and I was talking with someone even about this this morning. I'm, I'm really glad to have, to, to have lived in, a, in, in an age of modern medicine. If I, if I were some of the physical issues that I've dealt with, I, I probably wouldn't be around if, if I was born 100 years ago. Um, or else we would all be around and we'd have a whole lot more to complain about probably, and, and justifiably so. So God heals in a number of different ways. And yet what we have here in this situation is this man is seeking supernatural healing, but he never really answers the question to Jesus. Remember, I brought this up to you last week. When Jesus asked him the question, do you want to get well? He never answers. Yet in reality, what uh, Jesus says to him in verse 8, he says, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet or your bed and walk. Immediately the man became well and he picked up his pallet and he began to walk. So Jesus extended this grace of healing to him, but what did the man have to do? He had to obey. He had to follow the directions of the Lord, and he had to respond to that grace. We respond through obedience. I'm bringing this up right away on purpose because we're talking about the law this morning, okay? So we're, this is going to get real sticky real fast. Um, 
Because it tells us at the end of verse 9, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, tells the man to get up and pick up his bed and walk. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, the Jews being probably Jewish leaders, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet or your bed. Then he, the man who was healed, answered them and he said, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick it up and walk? Who told you to violate the Sabbath? See, this is what, that's what they're really asking. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Interesting. Jesus heals the man, then he kind of takes off and he leaves. And he says, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We're not even going to look at that this week, by the way. Maybe we'll look at that probably next week some. The man went away and informed the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. I find that fascinating. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, and he said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. So, Father, we pray that you would work this morning, that you would do that work in our hearts that needs to be done as we consider your actions, not only the things that you did, but the things that you are attempting to teach us by your actions that were recorded here. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So Jesus heals a guy on the Sabbath. He's going to refer back to this in John chapter 7. He's going to do it again in John chapter 9. In other passages, in the other gospels, he is doing things on the Sabbath including going through a field and, and just kind of plucking at the heads of, of, of some wheat and, and, and gathering, having his disciples do that, gathering up and eating those as they went about their way. So the Jews interpreted what he did as violating the Sabbath. I'll just read to you one verse out of Torah. Exodus 31, 15, it says, Work shall be done for six days, but on the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Sound pretty clear? What's going on here? It's a hard question, really. First place you have to start with is what constitutes work when it tells us in Exodus 31 whoever does any work on the Sabbath day originally I believe that was intended to refer to that which a person did to 
earn their living. Most of them did what? Most of them were farmers. Most of them worked in their fields. And so it, it, it really is an expression of what had began prior to the giving of the law at Sinai and continued after the giving of the law on Sinai until they went into the promised land when you had manna that was given for six days. And on the sixth day, they were supposed to gather it for an additional day because on the Sabbath day, they were to rest. The pattern that the Lord established for us back in the book of Genesis and on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. I, wanna, I wonder why he did that. And why that's recorded. I think it's mainly for us. Okay, I think it's for us so we don't get too burned out. Did he need to rest? In fact, did the Lord fully rest? I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. Did he fully rest? He, he, he still had his hands on the universe, allowing it to continue as it does. He also referred to himself in the Old Testament in a few places as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus will refer to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath in the New Testament, which to me is another, earmark this, guys, it's another claim of deity. Because it was the Lord of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, that word Lord is the proper name of God, Yahweh, which in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, you guys know I'm very fond of the Septuagint, is the Greek word kurios, which in the English is translated what? Lord. Okay? And of course, you know this. They, the Greeks replaced the proper name of God with kurios because they were also Jews and they had a very high respect for the name of God and did not want to even write the name of God. So what they, they wrote Kyrios referring to the proper name of God, which we still have in the Masoretic text, incidentally, which didn't come around till the ninth century. Um, but what about the law? What about work? In the Mishnah, the Mishnah made it illegal to do almost anything, particularly carrying anything, on the Sabbath. Now, the, the, the Mishnah was a commentary on Torah and other passages. Developed to somewhat of a degree in what's called a midrash. You guys know what the midrash is, right? I tell you it all the time. A midrash is where you put 10 Jews in a room and you end up with 12 different opinions, all right? I can say that because I'm part Jewish, all right? But anyway, where they hash out these things. The Midrash was all, excuse me, the Mishnah was also the recording of the oral traditions that accompanied Torah. Is it on the same level as Torah? I don't believe so. But it is the commentary of Torah. And it explained some of the passage in Torah. If you've read the Old Testament, Torah, as you know, first five books of the Bible. If you've read 
that part of the Bible sometimes is hard to understand. So they interpreted. Didn't always get it right. So they decided that work meant carrying any type of a burden. However, this is where it gets real sticky. Provisions in the Mishnah says that if you're inside a city, a city you can carry things. There's a lot of contradiction going on here. A lot of contradiction going on here. And, and when I... Okay, there, there's two things when people are contradicting themselves theologically. A, they're probably confused. Or B, they have a hidden agenda. They have a hidden agenda. And we're just not going to mention some of these things. That's, I'm not going to go there. Um, they're either confused or they have a hidden agenda. I think these Jews had both. I don't think they, were, they already had decided they didn't like Jesus. And so here he has told this man to get up and carry his bed on the Sabbath doing work. Now, why did Jesus do that? Couldn't he have gone on Friday? Couldn't he have waited till Sunday? Sabbath. Saturday, right? You know that, okay? Why did he do that? So one of my many questions that I have for Jesus when I get into, into heaven. But this really begins in the Gospel of John. Again, we're going to see it in, in chapter 7. We'll see it in chapter 9. We even see it kind of alluded to in chapter 19. This begins the point of contention between people who were committed fully to their tradition and a willingness to set aside their tradition to follow Jesus. And, and it, to me, it, it brings up all kinds of questions because one is, what would we set, I'm talking to Christians, and I understand that. But what will we set aside to follow Jesus? What do we need to set aside to follow Jesus? What are we willing to set aside to follow Jesus? Or maybe flip this around 180 degrees. What are you unwilling to set aside to follow Jesus? I have decided to follow Jesus, right? The old hymn. No turning back. No turning back. Cross before me, the world behind me. Um, Really, really, it's a great song. Maybe we ought to do it sometime. Um, but I think that's a very important question. Because what about the law? What about my Christian tradition? But trying to keep this within the context of, of the Scriptures, what about the law? Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4. Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 3, Hebrews 7 through 9. We don't have time to look at them all today. I'm tempted, but I, we don't have time to look at them all today. I'm not that tempted. I don't want to put, you know, this, that would be a long day. It tells us that the law 
was never intended to justify humanity. Romans, or we'll make it Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 16. I'll read that to you first. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Okay, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. As I'm reading this, I'm, the questions even come to me. What is, what's harder to try? Now, okay, set aside the impossibility of being justified by the law, which I just read to you. Okay, set it aside just for a moment. What's harder, to try to justify yourself by following the law or to try to allow the Lord Jesus Christ to justify you through what? Your faith. What's harder? I think the latter. Why? You can't keep the law. The Bible, we know this. Galatians tells us that the law was our, it uses the word tutor in the English. I'm going to get into that in just a second if we have time. Because tutor is not a good translation of that Greek word. If I am trying to justify myself by some type of works, and you all know people who are doing it, don't you? Well, they're trying, okay? They're, they're, they're not successful. But if I am trying to justify myself through some type of works, number one, I'm going to compare myself to everybody else. And I'm going to be envious and angry with those who are doing it better than I am. And I'm going to feel proud and arrogant toward those who are not doing it as good as I am. Second of all, I'm probably it's going to turn me into someone who's I'm going to lie to myself a lot. Because I'm going to do, for one thing, do with with what a friend of mine, a coworker, years ago told me. I'm going to employ a cafeteria type of spirituality. You know what a cafeteria is, right? I haven't been to a cafeteria in years. I don't, do they even have those anymore? Where uh, smorgasbords. I, is that a he, and anyway? Um, where you get a little bit of this, kind of like a potluck, all right? All right, we're speaking church language now. You get a little bit of this and a little bit of that, right? And you create your own sense of spirituality rather than submitting to that which God has declared through his word. And to do that, you have to lie to yourself. And then you hope to God that he grades on a scale. Which means I'm better than somebody else, so I'm going to get a better grade than somebody else. I get in, they don't. That's horrible theology, but people believe that. And many of them believe that, but they will not tell you that. They won't admit it. Then they'll play the God is love card, right? 
well, I believe that God just loves everybody and he'll just let everybody in. And this, this, this weird undeveloped sense of universalism, which I don't believe the Bible teaches. So therefore, it is easier for them to try to fill in the squares. You know, some of these, some of these type A personalities, all right, I definitely don't want to do any eye contact now, but some of these type A personalities and they want to fill in all the squares rather than to live by faith. I have the law. This is what it says. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it. I'm doing it really good. And therefore, I should be justified. And I'm going to neglect passages like what I just read. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, period. No flesh. Romans 3.20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of what? Sin. The law informs you of sin. But you see people, and, and I see Christians do that. They would rather gravitate toward a, a spirituality, a religion of orderliness, got to do it right, rather than what we have already read in the Gospel of John. And remember, the earlier chapters speak into the passages that we are currently studying. And the, the, the passage that is probably, well, several passages that have had an incredible impact on me uh, in teaching through this Gospel, but one is in John 3, the spirit flows, the spirit blows, the wind blows where he wills. You can't see where it's coming or you can't see where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. I don't think we as Christians spend enough time with what Jesus is declaring to Nicodemus, who was a teacher of what? The law. The incredible freedom that Jesus is expressing here to Nicodemus. And as I mentioned to you last week, it's almost as if one commentator, one commentator was saying it is almost as if Jesus laid around on a hammock from Sunday to Friday noon and then got up and went out and did stuff and did all this stuff during the Sabbath to, to just talk to really stress the point that we cannot be justified by the law. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was our tutor. It says that in the New King James, right? I did some digging on this word because I, I found it fascinating. The literal English translation of this word used to be, the law was our boy learner. Boy hyphen learner. What is it describing? The law was the boy learner. In other words, in Greek culture, and this is, this is, this is written in secular Greek writings. A boy learner, and I was going to pronounce it for you, but I'd mispronounce it, so I won't bother, okay? 
was the guy, usually a slave, who would take the boy, child. Remember, women didn't, you know, women didn't go to school then, all right? Just the way it is, all right? They would take the boy to school, and in the afternoon, they would go and get the boy and walk him home. And he would make sure that the boy would get home safely. We had those growing up where I went to school. We called them crossing guards. Make sure we got across the busy street without getting smashed by some automobile. And the boy learner was not a teacher. I find that fascinating that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, used this particular title, this particular function to describe the law. Paul, who was a Pharisee, writes this. The law was our boy learner. And this word in Galatians 3.24, it really is emphasizing the constructive function of the law in contrast to the freedom of the gospel. The constructive function of the law, the container. Now, do children need a container? Absolutely. Do they need rules? Absolutely. Have you ever been around a young child where their parents had no rules for them? What does it do? For me, I'll tell you what it does. It's between us. It draws out the homicidal maniac in me is what it does, all right? Kids who have no rules. They need rules, don't they? They need boundaries. Have you been around adults who need boundaries? Sure you have. I would encourage you all to establish good ones. But when we became adults, we no longer needed the boundaries. We still knew they were there. Many of them God-given, all right? You see a lot of the Ten Commandments. You, you see at least nine of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, all right? I'm not talking about a liberty that says do whatever you want, however you want, when you want, without any regard for the consequences. But Jesus here is attempting to put our understanding, humanity's understanding of the law and grace in its proper place. And he will tell us later in, in another gospel, the man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. So you have a God-given, a reason, excuse, commandment to take one day out of the seven and do absolutely nothing. And some of you should learn how to do that. 
to do absolutely nothing. You ever, have you, got, you ever gone through a day and done absolutely nothing? <laughs> you guys are all a bunch of type A personalities, aren't you? What's that? Fill in every minute, you know? Let me counter that just for fun, okay? Not come down. You know I'm not come down, right? If it is true, and it is because the Bible says so, that in him we live and we have our being, then every minute is already filled in. My brain can only handle so much reading the Bible in a day. All right, maybe, may, okay, I'm getting older, all right? So my brain can only pray for so long. But I can pray in different ways and still commune with God. I can watch the clouds blow by and say, thank you, God, that you've moved the clouds out of the way. Now we have some sunshine, you know, all, and, and to recognize that in him we live and we move and we have our being and he is intimately involved with everything that goes on in our lives, in our minds. He can read your mind. You know that. You know that, right? He can read your mind, yet he loves you anyway. Well, we'll just leave that alone. How's that? But what Galatians 3 is telling us is that humankind basically remains under the constraints of the law until God declares by sending his son that the time has come that a, essentially a new way of relating to God has come into being. Now, my belief, your mileage may vary. I believe we've always been saved by grace. All right, I believe we've always been saved by grace. Because it's very clear that Paul tells us that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So they had to be justified another way. The keeping of the law was the keeping of their identity of the people of God. I'm talking about Israel. Our identity of the people of God is the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. Our identity of the people of God is that which Jesus gave. I, gosh, I hate telling you this because I'm going to have to live up to it. All right. Our identity as the people of God is that which Jesus has given us on the Sermon of the Mount, which to me is a whole lot stricter, harder, difficult than what Torah could lay down. So much there to consider given to us in the Sermon of the Mount. So when the Lord of the Sabbath, Leviticus chapter 23, God declares the Sabbath is his. When the Lord of the Sabbath Jesus refers to himself as that title, Matthew 12, Mark 2, Luke 6. When the Lord of the Sabbath tells you to take up your bed and walk, you take up your bed and walk. You do what he's told you to do. 
first of all, he received that grace of healing. Second of all, it was a grace to do something that was outside the norm. Now, I'm fascinated by this because, okay, if this, follow my thinking here. If this is the Sabbath, and it was, did someone take him there Friday night to the pool of Bethesda? Or did somebody carry him there on the Sabbath day? Do you see the inconsistencies? The, it, really, it really struck me how inconsistent these are because <clears throat> I think one of the problems that Jesus is attempting to unfold within the hearts of the Jews is they are attempting to content, condemn someone over something that they cannot keep themselves. Jesus tells us if you violated the law at one point, you violate it all. James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, whoever keeps the law or keeps the whole law, excuse me, and yet stumble in one point is guilty of them all. See, the thing is, is what I, and I'll wrap this up. What concerns me is that we can turn the grace of God into a law. We can turn the grace of God into a law. And often it is when we decide that it's too hard to live by faith. And quite frankly, it's difficult to live by faith. I think it is. I think it's difficult to live by faith. I think it's very difficult to live, to live by faith in the one whom the wind blows where it wills. You cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. And the Holy Spirit does things or leads in directions. Now, there's a lot of weirdness out there. I understand that, okay? I understand that. But the Holy Spirit, and I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, not, not, a, not the Spirit within some man. But when the Holy Spirit leads things that don't really quite add up to our social norms, which is exactly what happened with this man when he was told to take up his bed, rise up, and walk. And it's interesting because he, he feared the Jews more than he had faith in Jesus. Because he tells on Jesus. Do you realize that this is like an, a, a, you know what types are, right? This man is really a type of Judas. You think about it. He rats Jesus out to the Jews. Judas in three years, will, maybe a little less, will do the same thing. Because there's that temptation to take the grace of God and put it back into a law. Because it's easier. There's safety in boundaries. That's why, I, I, again, the, the song we sang this morning, Deep Calls Out to Deep. The depth of the heart of God speaking to the depth of humanity.
of the individual. And that's Psalm 42, 7. Psalm 42, it begins, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. You don't get that by following a law that you cannot keep. You don't get that by following a law that God never intended for you to keep. Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sins was always the A plan. Always the A plan. I, to me, as I think about that, it, it brings me up a number of questions that I cannot answer, but I believe that was always in the plan of the heart of God. But the big question, and we have to think about this as Christians, can those who have broken the law judge others who have done so? I referred to it earlier. I touched on it earlier. I don't earlier. I don't think I don't think they can. I think that's part of what Matthew chapter 23 is about. You know what Matthew chapter 23 is about? It's the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. They sit in the seat of Moses, it tells us in verse 2 of chapter 23. And Jesus says, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe. That observe and, and do. In other words, obey it. But do not according to their works. For they say and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens and hard to bear and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They say, but do not do. Sound familiar? Sound like 21st century? That's why I think it's important that we're careful who we listen to. And they say it. So obey it, but don't do according to the works, and do not use the fall of a mega church pastor as an excuse for your own carnality. Let God deal with them. My thought is that's where all greeters at Walmart should end up, or that's where they could get their labor force for greeters at Walmart, is, is guys who... They, they've fallen, then they're done, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary, okay? And I do have some exceptions to that. So much more important than to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who will speak to you first and foremost, and I think primarily, through his word. You see, it goes back to the, to the word. It goes back to the written word. It goes back to all of the written word. My Bible does not begin in Matthew. All of it. But we approach it, and I think this is the key, and I'm, I'm going to shut up, okay? <laughs> we approach it from someone who has been liberated by the grace of God. And therefore, our response to Torah, even, 
practice of obedience because we have been liberated and graced by the grace of God. Therefore, we understand that we live in new boundaries. And we live in a place that we have a huge area that we can walk in. One more verse, and then I will be through. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. It's not in my notes, so I'm going to turn to it. Paul understood this. Paul the Pharisee understood this. And he talks about the work of Jesus on the cross and how we were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. He has made alive together with him. I'm in verse 13. I wanted to back up a little bit. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities, powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it on the cross. He makes a public spectacle and triumphs over evil. So, because Jesus has done that on the cross, let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow of a thing to come. The substance is Jesus. The Sabbath was the container, but the container is only put in place to do what? Hold the contents, the substance. God rests on the seventh day. Does so not for him, but does so because of us. Calling us not only to rest once a week, but also demonstrating to us, preaching even a broader message of the fact that when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we enter into his rest. 